stories, spirituality, pathways, and aliens. You're here on The Long Road Home. Hello, listeners. Welcome to The Long Road Home. I'm Emily. And I'm Chad. Thanks and for joining thank us Thank you today. for joining us. We are still here. <laughs> the we microchip are. from the vaccine is settled nicely inside our organs, mm-hmm. and I believe I'm starting to download the signals. Yeah, I think so. We're, we're tuning in to the higher frequencies that be, and uh, yeah, really I'm raring to go. Yeah, they're telling me to buy Microsoft. <laughs> oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. Mine's really pushing that liberal agenda what's that trader joe's trader joe's i mean is i guess i need a whole foods now <laughs> i demand whole foods we're doing okay we for real whole foods. we oh, were really I'm tired excited. yeah we are getting whole foods and it's, that's the thing to be happy about we have a wonderful co-op we have where, an we, awesome where co-op. we have i do want where that we live. trader joe's yeah me I, that was honestly, all sarcastic by the way yeah we're fine i i've only been at trader joe's like one time they don't know a lot about it killer snacks yeah, Killer I just remember seeing that video of the, like the live DJ really going hard in the middle of Trader yeah. Joe's. Everyone just casually walking around. Rumor has it that the Trader Joe's employees are trained to be kind of flirtatious and they make you feel really good about yourself and your choices. And that's also kind of low-key why I want at Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> My brother said they did that at Zoomies, too. They would ha- they would teach you to compliment the like the stuff you were wearing and shit to try and make you buy more that stuff. That makes sense. Yeah. All those people were so nice They always, me. they're like, hey, man, those are nice pants. And listen, I do, sh- we shop at Zoomies. Fuck you. Yeah. I need s- cool, cool socks. Well, exactly. Okay? Almost exclusively for the cool socks. <laughs> yeah. They got decent button-ups. I, I buy one every day like gear so um but really what i want is an omega mart they have one in vegas um they are weird looking they have they make like ham and they cut it into shapes and heads oh that's and stuff. like that art installation it's basically an art installation yeah. yeah but you can go in and buy stuff that's what i want oh i didn't know that you could actually buy stuff there yeah i, I think so i have no idea i've never, i haven't <laughs> been there it looks lying. cool and i want one yeah okay anyway Any, yeah um <laughs> what are we doing today where are we so I ran across an article this week almost by chance while sifting through the massive emails I get every day. Now, I know in our mini-sode that I said that we were going to have a rockin' episode or something like that as like sort of a hint to what yeah, was happening. Yeah, you totally but gave I, them a, uh, you lied I kind of did a 180. I lied to you all. <laughs> I'm not trustworthy. So, well, the title of this article, or the email caught my, my eyes. The title of the email was The Search for a Ranger Who Is Lost and Never Found. It's pretty attention-grabbing, right? Well, I think that's a, called a subject line. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> God. <laughs> Sorry. So I, I don't know email anymore. I don't I use it. I just telepathically send stuff with my microchip. Right. So anyway, I decided to check out like the email, and I, it's from it was from Outside Magazine, so like, you don't really think that's going to be that crazy, but I'm actually really glad I opened it and looked at it. So it's a story from Outside. It's a long investigative piece written by someone named Brendan Borrell, and it's an absolutely wild ride from start to finish. It's a tale of intrigue, mysterious happenings, love, nature, and missing people. Wow, it has yeah. it all. Yeah, and like I said, I had a whole other idea. I was going to do like the Georgia Godstones or something, but that's what the rocking hint was right. supposed to be. We're going to come Obviously, back to it. it had something to do with rocks, we'll right? We'll get back to it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, get, we'll get to it eventually. <laughs> but um, after reading this, I, I turned around and started writing an entirely new episode for this week, and that's why this is a day late. You know but, what? Follow that serotonin, baby. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. I really, really did. And so today we're drawing very heavily from Borel's piece. And after listening to this, I highly encourage you to go read it for yourself. Today we're talking about Paul Fugit, 
the only park ranger to have ever gone missing and never be seen again. This is a great story, and I'd never heard of it, and it's like it just... It was amazing. So we're going to go ahead. Oh, before we start, there are some other sources. Like I said, we have uh, the main source of this article is The Search for a Ranger Who Was Lost and Never Found, written by Brendan Borrell. We also pulled some stuff from Wikipedia, just some uh, odds and ends about the the place where it happened and stuff like that. So we'll be sure to post all those links on our Discord. So go join it and come say hello and get, get more information. Yeah, do that. But without further ado, let's begin. On January 13, 1980, Paul Fugit took a break from his work as a park ranger in Shirakawa National Monument in Arizona. Paul had worked in the park for three years and was no stranger to its many trails and goat paths. That day, Paul decided to head off wearing his standard park service uniform and red wing boots and carrying a green down parka. I am going to do a trail, he announced to an aide. If he wasn't back by 4.30, she should close up without him. Those would be the last words of Paul, who was never seen again after leaving the visitor center. Before we take a closer look at Paul, we should start by describing our location, the Shirakawa National Monument. Established in 1924, the monument is approximately 12,000 acres and contains tons of interesting geological features and wildlife. One of the big attractions are the sheer amount of hoodoos and balancing rocks that are located within the park. If you don't know what a hoodoo is, it's a tall, thin spire of rock that protrudes from the bottom of an arid drainage basin or bad land produced through the process of erosion. It's basically a big, wiggly tower. And yeah. um, that's Made the difference. <laughs> yeah, that's the difference between the hoodoo and there's another one. It's like the an aspire. The hoodoo, like the width varies as you move up and down. It looks more like a totem pole. Right. Yep. They kind of look like ghostly. Yeah, they do. Honestly, it's really pretty. I looked up pictures and I'd love to take a trip out there sometime. Take a second and pause this and go take a look for yourself to get an idea of the type of environment Paul wandered off into. It's really pretty, but it's also obvious that it's very rugged and remote. Speaking of remote, visitor numbers are typically fairly low because of just how hard this place is to get to. Although close to Interstate 10, there is no direct route south, and the main approach is from the west, 34 miles along Arizona 186 from a town called Wilcox. The only other possible paved entrance road is south from a place called Douglas on the Mexican border. There's one dirt track, the Pinery Canyon Road, across the Shirakawa Mountains, linking the monument with New Mexico to the east, but this is closed during the winter and in bad condition most of the year. So getting in and out of the monument seems pretty tough, and it adds to the remoteness for the employees and the people who visit. It's it's a small park, but it's way out there. Yeah. Lastly, we should mention one last attraction located within Shirakawa National Monument, the Faraway Ranch. Settlement of this area was started at the Stafford Homestead in Bonita Canyon in 1879. Jahu Stafford was a significant pioneer in the area, and his cabin was incorporated into the later tourist development. In 1885-86, the 10th Cavalry, an African-American enlisted unit commanded by white officers, established a temporary camp at Bonita Canyon. They were part of the last campaign to capture the Apache Native American Geronimo. So historical significance plus the geological features in there are the reason that this place is uh, preserved. It's not big enough to be a park, I guess, and that's why it's a monument. I think that's actually like the definition of a monument versus a park. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. That's interesting mm-hmm. to think about. So, in 1886, Neil Erickson and Emma Sophia Peterson, both young Swedish immigrants, married and set out for Bonita Canyon to homestead. The Erickson homestead, established in 1887, soon became the Erickson Ranch as they gradually took over the smaller homesteads in the canyon. They planted fruit trees and vegetables and raised cattle. This time in the area is now referred to as the Erickson Ranch period and was significant in the areas of agriculture, architecture, industry, and social history, conservation, and it was part of the end of the frontier. Huh. Yeah, so How about that? it was just living in a time. <laughs> <laughs> in 1903, Neil became a forest ranger with what would soon become the United States Forest Service. He was promoted to, he was promoted to district ranger in 1917. 
He headquartered at the ranch until he received his promotion, which required him to relocate. The senior Ericsons left the ranch in the hands of their oldest child, Lillian, a college graduate and part-time school teacher. She managed the cattle ranching operations and branched out into guest ranching, letting rooms and providing guests with horses to ride and guided trail tours for a fee. In 1923, she suffered a head injury in a fall from a horse which compromised her vision immediately and took it completely 19 years later. So um, she went blind because she fell off a horse the wrong way. Nevertheless, even into her 80s, she continued to run the ranch with the help of a series of foremen and hired hands. Guest operations continued into the mid-1960s. In 1974, she moved for a time to a rest home in Wilcox, but returned to the ranch and continued to manage it in some capacity until her death in 1977. At about the same time as her accident in 1923, Lillian married a man named Ed Riggs. While she managed the operations at home, Ed promoted the Wonderland of Rocks, an area of rhyolite tough rock formations just southeast of the ranch, as a tourist attraction and potential national monument. Through his efforts, Shirakawa National Monument was established in 1924, and Riggs was hired to supervise construction of new horse and hiking trails throughout the newly established monument. That's pretty cool. It's a, it's honestly what a time really to really be cool. Alive. It's that's it's really was. You it's, established like, if you were a if you were a white horse. Swedish man in uh. America. You could establish your own national monument. It's actually really cool what happened. And the fact that they loved the place enough that they put themselves through that fight in order to get it uh, under a protected status is really amazing. Yeah, Wonderland of Rock. Yeah, it's really cool. Riggs was definitely a John Muir type, and uh, you know they both were able to get a large area of land protected. It's super duper cool, and these are my kind of people. I think it's awesome. But today, the homestead sits inside the monument, and to some, it brings with it a dark energy. Hmm. So <laughs> things aren't as good as they used to be at the old Aww. homestead. And that's a shame. The reason why is because Cochise, it is a shame. The reason why is Cochise County shares 80 miles of border with Mexico, and the Shirakawa Corridor is a historic immigration route for undocumented farm workers from Mexico. In the past several decades, that this place also started to begin being used by drug mules. So there, there were actual incidences uh, of not good stuff happening here as well. There were also some strange things that sort of surrounded the property. During Lillian's ownership, the house was inhabited by a string of caretakers, including one who hemorrhaged and died on the couch. A friend of Lillian's, Sally Klump. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Klump. Yeah, what a cursed Come last on. name. Uh, well, she vanished without a trace from a nearby ranch in 1978. In 2014, a Park Service employee named Karen Gonzalez was assaulted and nearly killed at the far away by an alleged drug smuggler from Mexico. Finally, there were human bones that turned up in the surrounding Coronado National Forest, where on separate occasions, both in 2015, two adults had gone missing under suspicious circumstances. Uh, yeah, so that's not great. Sketchy. A little yeah. bit. So there's some not super great stuff going on right there, uh, but overall it's still really pretty place. Cool back. I thought it was a cool backstory. It wouldn't be the first pretty place that had a fucked up past. So we have our setting. Emily, why don't you go ahead and lead us off into Paul. Deep in a remote piece of Arizona, Paul Fugit walked out of a visitor center and never came back. Paul was a monument naturalist who answered visitors' questions, curated exhibits, and put together trail guides and plant lists. He was 41 then and had a Texas twang, blue eyes and a woolly brown beard, and a ponytail that ran to his shoulders like a middle finger to his superior. Fuck the man. <laughs> this becomes a very contentious point between him and the National Park. We'll find out later. Yeah. Uh, but I, I immediately know the type, I feel like. Yeah. That's basically the National Park Service now. <laughs> <laughs> At least the ones that are like in the parks doing stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. 
He was also known to smoke a joint when the mood struck him, and he chafed under the button-down park service of that area. Quote, give him a bad time, was the Fugit family mantra. Yeah! Woo! Hell yeah! Skid him! <laughs> Born in Brooklyn, New York, on September 2nd, 1938, Paul was the first of three sons and three daughters. When World War II broke out, Paul's parents returned to their home state of Texas and moved into a wood-shingled two-bedroom house in Fort Worth. As a teenager, Paul grew Jurassic-sized castor bean plants in the backyard and tamed a crow, which would skin rats near the kitchen window and dive-bomb a neighbor's shiny bald head. Love it. That's exactly what I would want my crow to do if Is I that, had a crow. Well, I'm going to keep my <laughs> future-trained crows away from you, sir. I'll Mine make my own. Mine will just be trained to bring me shiny things. plenty of crows. <laughs> I just wanted to train them to bring me shiny stuff, not like attack things. I think it's just it's in their nature. Paul's father, Braxton, was a sheet metal worker for a predecessor of Lockheed Martin and earned side money doing taxes. He was a hard ass, butting heads with Paul constantly. His younger sister recalled to the investigator that, quote, In our family, you didn't fight. You got those really straight white lips and walked away. Later, Paul learned how to stand his ground, refusing to sign a loyalty oath in college and protesting the Vietnam War. Yeah, fight the man! All right! From the very get-go. He was a hippie! Some folks aboard made to raise the flag. Ooh, that red, white, and blue. <laughs> during college, Paul met his wife, Dodie, at his house during a summer back from college. Dodie, whose legal name is Marianne, had become friends with his sisters at a young age when they were all Girl Scouts together. Back from college in the summer of 1962, Dodie stopped by the Fugit house to say hello. While her friends exchanged dance tips, she wandered into the dining room and saw a guy with a crew cut and Buddy Holly glasses. Paul launched into a bizarre lecture about Inuits, then asked if she wanted to see his gun. Charming. Yeah, what a cool guy. Of course she is. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be very want... interested, to be honest. Like, if someone came up to me and was like, let me tell you about the Inuits. And they just was like, you want to see this? Do you want to see my gun? Whipped a pistol out. And of course she did. She was on the women's shooting team at, at what was then the Arlington State College, now UT Arlington. I'm sorry. They're in King of the Hill territory? Yeah, very close. Surprised he didn't whip out his propane. (laughs) Propane. (laughs) (laughs) That night, she told the Fugit girls she was going to marry Paul. Paul had eclectic interests, but had a very good idea of what sort of career he wanted. He earned a biology degree at Arlington while collecting antique guns, performing quality control work for a flour milling company, and hanging out with newspapermen at the cellar, a rowdy fixture on the Fort Worth music scene. Man, going to college was so much fucking easier back then. Seriously, you it's could actually work your way through college. Yeah, it's just crazy. It's like to hear stories like that always. Still, even now, now that I'm wrecked in amounts of debt, it still blows my mind. I'm very jealous. I don't know. 2021's a pretty good time to be alive. There's some, cra- <laughs> there's some crazy stuff happening, but also I don't know if I would have wanted to live through the 60s. I... That shit was, I mean, okay, I say that. I'm going to take it back. It's a complicated statement because there's a lot that happened and it was really cool. But also, I imagine at the time that it kind of just felt really chaotic. Yeah, no, I think so, too. I think those times of chaos are really, um, I heard something really cool, not to get totally off topic. I know, we totally did. It's okay. No, it's fine. Um, the the thought of, like, uh, turbulent time periods are reality splitting apart. And that was definitely a time period of, like, this old way of thinking, this new way of thinking, sort of ripping at the seams. Right. So, like, that would have been cool to experience, but he was also born in 1938, so he grew up in the 40s and 50s. Like, what's, I mean, yeah. That's pretty tough. Not super great. Not I mean, great. But he went to college working in a flour mill. 
(laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. He graduated in 1963 and for a time considered working at Utah's Dugway Proving Ground, an Army test site for biological and chemical weapons. Instead, that's interesting given his background, but that was something he was interested in doing. Yeah, it is. I don't know what exactly was leading. Maybe it was just it felt easy. Yeah. I don't know. Steady, steady yeah. job. Instead, in a life-changing decision, he decided to apply to the National Park Service instead. During this time, Paul and Doty were still very much in love with one another. They married on December 11th, 1964, and five months later, he was sent to work at Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico, where visitors were enthralled by his sunset talks. After a stint in the caverns, they were once again transferred, this time to Arizona's Navajo National Monument, home of the Betatakan cliff dwelling. Doty recalls that during this time, quote, we were just in ecstasy. Yeah, that's back when all the uh, park structures were still kind of new. Yeah. And so they weren't abysmal sinkholes that you lived in. <laughs> no, I bet I bet it was probably, yeah, they were like brand new. All I bet it was really, yeah. Heat, heating systems worked. Yeah. Like Everything was probably a lot more lax, too. You could bring your dogs. I've, I, you know, I thought about working for the park system for a while, and their living areas are rough these days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They definitely need an update. We need some infrastructure reform in this country. Yeah. Give us infrastructure. <laughs> You can delete that. No, it's fine. We need it. Give us infrastructure. Give us infrastructure. Give us jobs. Give us better roads. Come on, Biden. Get to work. (laughs) (laughs) It was right around here that Paul's disdain for the higher-ups in the National Park Service really started to come out. He didn't like being bossed around by the monument superintendent, Jack Williams, or Smokey Pig, as Paul called him. Oh, Smokey Pig over there's got a stick up his ass. (laughs) You won't even let me wear my mustache Smoky down pig. below my lips. I'm just trying to smoke a joint and show these people a how far away I can shoot this gun. <laughs> but no, that's for real, though. Things were so unbelievably lax. Him and another guy would just sit around and shoot bottles with their rifles on the job and talk shit about Williams. I definitely thought that you were uh, exaggerating. No, that just happened. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe Smokey Pig had a point there. <laughs> I think Smokey Pig, Paul? they were getting ready to kill him. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) That's why they were shooting? Apparently, though, the disdain was mutual. Williams wrote a letter in 1976 that chastised Paul for his anti-authority streak, his laziness, and his personal appearance. Quote, if you want to look and live like a hippie, that is certainly your prerogative, but not here at Navajo National Monument. Williams was also annoyed that the Park Service couldn't just fire the man. Quote, I do not understand the breed now coming into the NPS. He wrote to the regional director. Eventually, the Park Service transferred Paul to another park instead, removing the thorn from the uppity superintendent's side. This would be Paul's final assignment, placing him in the Shirakawa National Monument. In less than a year, he would be fired. The Park Service cited the fact he wouldn't adhere to grooming standards. The guy just ignored all their administrative BS and walked around with his Fu Manchu like he owned the place. They also referred to his negative personal attitude and abuse of government equipment. He was also known to sneak out into the woods and smoke a big fat duber when he had the chance. Yeah, he didn't really give a fuck about the people that were actually running the park service. He just really liked being outside. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are kind of like that now. Right. I don't think a lot of people want to move up into administration when you're working in the park service. According to Doty, the, the, the government equipment thing was because it that was she claims it's not true. And they said that Paul had stolen a government hay for one of her horses. She says that didn't happen. Oh, come it's on. A pretty, it's a pretty, uh, they're stretching it even if it was true. Yeah, like that is hay. a come far on. reach. They just didn't like him. To say 
that he misused government equipment because of misplaced hay. That's some bullshit. They didn't like him. No. Shortly after the firing, Paul and Doty moved to Tucson, where they began graduate studies at the University of Arizona. There, Paul met civil rights lawyer Edward Morgan, and the two spent the next five years waging a legal battle to get his job back. Wow. Yeah, so they just turned around and they he met. He wasn't going to let it go. No, and he didn't. In the meantime, Paul made an impression in the botany department at U of A. His supervisor called him one of the finest men it has been my pleasure to work with and among the top 10 students the department has seen in the past 25 years. After Paul went missing, a classmate named a new plant species in his honor, flowering desert perennial named Amsonia fugate. Yeah, I think he got he got along with the academic world a lot better. Yeah, that like. makes sense. It does. He it seems makes sense. Like he, he was, was anti-war. He was right. He, it's, it was a good government probably a little bit. You yeah. know, working in the park service because he wanted to be outside, did not appreciate like the federal reach mm-hmm. or the federal thumb. Yeah, that on the top Narch- of his right on top of his ponytail. Exactly. Yeah, he got he really enjoyed his time there, I think, and so they both. It seems like they both really, really had a good time while they were there. Yeah, and eventually Paul and his lawyer friend actually won their case against the NPS. Which is the National... I haven't mentioned that. It's the National Park Service. Oh, have we not said that? National Park Service, NPS. Yes, those are interchangeable terms. When Paul was reinstated to the Shirakawa Monument in 1976 over the objection of Park Service lawyers, Doty kept the job she'd found as a scientific photographer in Tucson. Paul was awarded back pay, minus any income he had earned from research stipends and student teaching. Which meant, Doty says, that the Park Service ponied up only a few thousand dollars for the grief it had caused. Yep, so once again, buttonheads almost immediately. But he got his job back. Yeah. A huge fuck you I mean, to the, the honestly, Park Service. <laughs> like, to get any back pay, it's I feel surprising. like, is a win. Yeah. yeah. During this time period, Doty and Paul also began to experiment with a semi-open relationship. Well, marriage. It's definitely a bit more normalized today, and we're all for it when it's consensual, but back then it wasn't something you'd be putting flyers out about in the middle of Tucson. According to the article from Outside Magazine, it was around this time that Doty began to experience immense pain from sexual activity. Doctors identified lesions in her endometrial lining and cauterized them to help ease the pain. But the discomfort would return, and she was always on edge about it. So to me, this sounds like she had endometriosis. That's that's typically when you have your uterine lining. Sounds very lining. similar. It does sound very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know anything about cauterizing f- uh, as, a, as a way to treat endometriosis. I don't think that they do that anymore. So I wonder how helpful that was for her. I it think doesn't sound now like they, it was very now helpful. They, they, they'll scrape the scrape. lesions off. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Maybe they still do cauterizing, but it's, I, I would imagine at that time, too, that it was probably a very painful procedure. Um, probably, honestly, it might have made like, things worse. Yeah, it might have made things worse mm-hmm. and, like, not a lot of resources available to women at that time. It's a very private matter. Fucking sucks, Dodie. I'm sorry, girl. Because of this, Dodie began to allow Paul to have service-level relationships with other women. She was basically allowing him to go out and have sex if he wanted and was very clear that there was to be no sort of emotional involvement when it came to other people. Um, They're very ahead of their time. Yeah. I mean, it seemed to have worked for him for a while anyway. Well, you know, those things can get complicated. Things like that can get complicated. Uh, they were ahead of their time, but there's not there's just like not a lot of resources for her and her condition back then. And also for somebody that wants to pursue something like this, I imagine. Like, no, so I don't think so. I, I, I bet it was just pretty complicated, pretty something that you had to keep like really secret because it was just like 
Yeah, like, I mean, it's really, like, it's the fucking 60s. It's really, the 50s were not that long ago. This is not something that uh, a regular old average Joe American is going to think is normal. Right. So, to them, if there was no emotional involvement, then it was okay. And it seemed to work for the two for several years until Paul met a woman who we'll call Bonnie. I just want to say that we think an open relationship is completely okay. And judging from the letters and notes and Dodie's remarks, these two were very much in love and had a spiritual connection with one another. Do your thing, freaky people. At the same time, it's really, really important to be clear have debriefs, and make sure everyone's on the same page, right? Yep, otherwise. Like, communication Otherwise, is key. you can get stabbed. Yeah. Repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> In the back. Um, or, or with the, the front. penis. Sometimes <laughs> it's a murder. No, what? <laughs> Sorry. I, we went it could way. be. We both, wanted, we both wanted to make a joke there, but you were talking about death. Two very different about. types of, of damage. <laughs> Emotional and physical. <laughs> Well, it seems like maybe that wasn't happening this time around because right around here is where things become much more mysterious. Bonnie, 21 at the time, which by the way, we said Paul was 41, right? Yeah, 20 years. Yeah. It's quite a difference. Um, Bonnie had fallen head over heels for Paul, even though she knew the rules of their engagement. Dodie had become uncomfortable with the situation and had asked Paul to end things. Bonnie had leaned on Paul for emotional support, when Bonnie's father died, and she told Paul that she thought the relationship had run its course. They picked her up at the airport a week before Paul's disappearance to try and let her know the relationship was over. A week later, Bonnie and Dodie would see each other again, but this time under much different circumstances. So, yeah, things got complicated pretty quickly, and it doesn't sound like they ever got Nothing was ever, like, yeah, there was no resolution, really. Uh, according to the the article that we're pulling most of this stuff from, is that she ne- didn't really take the the hint when they did bring her in and they discussed things, and it seems like she wasn't really aware of like they were trying to end it with her. Yeah, I don't they think didn't they, do a good job. No, of breaking they did up a really Bonnie. bad job. Yeah, they. I'll call you. We'll call you. Oh, yeah, it's one of those situations. I think. And but here we are. This is the we're at the last day of Paul Fugit, as far as we know. Bonnie was the first to realize something was wrong because she was staying with him for the weekend. When oh, he... yeah, clearly they didn't break up. No. <laughs> okay, clearly they didn't break up. Nope. Uh, when he didn't return after dark, she grew concerned. She had last seen Paul earlier that day when he had driven Bonnie up to the Messiah Point trailhead so she could hike downhill to the visitor center. At about 8 p.m., she notified Ted Scott, the monument superintendent, who rounded up two colleagues and set out with a flashlight, trudging through the surrounding canyons, calling Paul's name the whole way. The next morning, Scott contacted the Cochise County Sheriff's Office, which sent in a search and rescue team, putting a total of 22 men and women on the ground, plus one dog. By Tuesday afternoon, the National Guard had a helicopter overhead, and 16 volunteers from the Southern Arizona Rescue Association bedded down at the visitor center. They scrambled over rocky ridges and rappelled into the impossible Oregon Pipe Formation. They were excited to find footprints until they realized they'd been made by a searcher coming up from below. Oh, no. Yeah, that was a cool, clumsy mistake on their part. Ugh. Moving in a long line, they scoured most everything within a half mile of the visitor center. So it's after the first few days that this case really starts to get nuts. Honestly, it's, it's pretty fucking wild considering all this happening is happening in some little desert town in the middle of Arizona. There's a lot of drama. Yeah. Uh, on the fourth day of the search for Paul, snow began to fall. As hope began to fade, Bonnie returned once again to Paul's cabin. It wasn't empty, though. Inside was Dodie, accompanied by a friend and their two horses. Inside the cabin, she and Dodie had a private moment. 
During the conversation, a strange fact arose. So this next part all comes from an interview that Borel conducted in his story. Quote, I was worried that maybe something happened to you, Dodie said. Bonnie wasn't sure what she meant. Like maybe you'd gotten pregnant, Dodie said. Bonnie could feel her face starting to burn. She took a seat. She hadn't had her period in two months, and the smell of eggs had started to make her feel nauseous. Why would you think that, she asked. Did you and Paul not have sex? He told me he had a vasectomy. Not as far as I knew. Oh, what? Yeah. He uh, lied about he having a vasectomy? Lied. Apparently, Bonnie was not aware Ew. of this. Not scummy. But yeah, Bonnie was taken aback. When, when she told Paul about her symptoms a few days before his disappearance, she asked if he had ever heard of a vasectomy reversing. He hadn't, he told her. Now, there was no way to confront Paul. After their conversation, Dodie thought it would be best if Bonnie left the monument. Dodie also told Borel that shortly afterwards, she connected her with a therapist in Tucson, although Bonnie says that it wasn't Dodie who did this. Weird. Okay. Yeah, weird, right? There's all these little irregularities in, in Dodie's story that we'll, we can talk about later. Either way, Bonnie drove down to Tucson for a pregnancy test. Turns out Dodie was right, and after she received a positive pregnancy test, she had an abortion. I swear to God, if the only thing you take away from this story is that a woman had an abortion, you're part of the problem with this country. Normalize women ra- women's rights or get out of my show. Yeah, you can get out. There's so much more to what's happening right now. Stop focusing on that. It's okay. Leave our bodies alone. The official search effort lasted just over two weeks. As hope for finding Paul seemed to dim, the National Park Service let everyone know they believed he was no longer within the 18 square miles of the monument. Crazy. Yeah, theories began to develop around the disappearance as well, including criminal investigator Craig Emanuel's idea that Paul had been the victim of a drug deal gone wrong when he accidentally stumbled across it. Oh. Mm-hmm. No matter the theory, Paul was never found, which didn't seem to upset the Park Service too much. His disappearance didn't feel like much of a loss to them, it seems, and they made quick work of trying hard to make the story less about a missing person and more about his character. Of course they did. Yeah, they. It's, we'll talk about it in a minute. <laughs> in a very public display of government apathy and general shittiness, the Park Service formally fired him for abandoning his post, a move that was grounds for denying Doty's survivor's benefits and Paul's retirement funds for nearly a decade. That's Fucking Insane. unbelievable. It's criminal. It is. It's awful. This was terrible PR for them, and which, in the words of a 1981 newspaper column, came out that they came out, quote, looking like a heartless, money-grubby villain. The National Park Service. It's true. And honestly, if I've learned anything from doing this podcast, is that the people running the Park Service seem to be not that great and could really care less if you die in their park. Seriously? It's what's true. up, NPS? They are not great. I don't know what's going on. My my respect for the National Park Service. I love your parks. Love but the parks. The people running it, my respect for you has dropped through the floor. Yeah, y'all. I don't know what's going on over there, but they need up. serious change. We got to get it together. It is. Um, We're literally losing people. Yes, we've seen their behavior several times now in our Missing 411 series, and it always seems to be them deflecting the problem and doing everything they can to make sure they don't have to deal with whatever happened. Right. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But anyways... Anyways, once the Park Service fired Paul, the public really turned off to what they were trying to sell. Instead, a new story formed with Paul depicted as a likable antihero, a freewheeling pioneer of the New West. Dodie, meanwhile, was seen as twice a victim, somebody who'd managed to prevail against an uncaring bureaucracy only through old-school grit and perseverance. Those are Boyle's words, very well written. Yes, very Mm -hmm. well written. By this time, the story of Paul, Dodie, and Bonnie had also become public knowledge. And That's as the, a shame, it honestly. It is. It kind of changed some things. I'm sure it did. It, and it's it, it had no, I don't feel like this has any reason being, I mean, we're talking about it. So I guess we're including we're it. We're talking the about narrative. it because we had to talk about Bonnie. Because Bonnie is the one who 
realized initially that she that he wasn't there. Right. Yeah. But like, yeah, it's just a shame that people who who uh, aren't as accepting of this narrative got their hands on this part of the story. They did. Um, Paul's sister is quoted as saying, I couldn't have accepted that. And I was surprised that she did. Dodie said that it was embarrassing, and in her notes, she expressed fears about it being a distraction. She's uh, quoted as saying, I can't let Bonnie, who is a nice, sweet girl, say face and salve her conscience to the tune of crucifying Paul, she wrote. If Bonnie could see that she has had something that has happened to a million women before her, that it was not a singular crime, that she was not defrauded, but simply fooled herself. Mm. So, weird chemistry going on between them. Yeah, that's that whole, like... Something was obviously women, going on with Paul, too. Women uh, accepting, like, abuse from men and allowing it to happen to other women. I mean, him, that is a, that's not great. It's not him. Dodie shouldn't defend Paul lying about a vasectomy. No, absolutely not. Like, that's absolutely not. That was a bad, terrible thing for someone to do. Bad news. It is. But by the summer, two major theories had coalesced. A Park Service investigator named Pat Hanley, uh, who I would call an antagonistic character, mm. believed Paul had simply run away from a failed career, a broken marriage, and a pregnant girlfriend. Emmanuel, meanwhile, thought the affair was irrelevant and believed Paul was content in his life. He suspected, largely on the basis of a hypnosis session that we'll talk about, that Paul had been taken off Monument property against his will and murdered. In yet another disgusting move by the Park Service, on February 23, 1981, Dodie was sent a bill demanding that she return almost $7,000 that the Park Service had paid her under the presumption that Paul was missing. <gasps> yeah. So this, this investigator came in, this journalist came in or whatever, and started like asking questions and, and, and making it appear that Paul had left on purpose and then NPS was like great give us our money back it's kind of what it seems like ah. um, I think that there might have been some connections there I'm not for a private investigator so I don't know but there's definitely some that kind of feels that way right they right. were just trying to really destroy Dodie I, I don't know why um, I mean this, I feel like this poor woman's been through enough <laughs> yeah give her the money um, Lord knows they have plenty of it too yeah well, they say, quote, they said, quote, since Paul Fugit has been officially determined to be absent from his post of duty without authority, all payments of amount by allotment for the period while he was under missing status must be repaid to the United States. Uh, I'm so sick Not of I'm, After this episode, I'm tired of the Park Service. I don't know. you got to fix whatever's going on up there. Later that year, the Park Service's regional chief detective told a radio reporter that finding Paul was not a priority, and he felt certain Paul was, quote, alive and is living with a paramour somewhere very healthy. They just didn't That's completely believe unfounded, though. The, fact, the thought that he might be dead. It is. It's beside the fact. He, he didn't. He's gone. There's no way to prove that he left. Right. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know what's going through their minds. But so far, we have a few ideas of what may have happened, right? Paul's girlfriend was pregnant and he ran away. Or maybe he was on the wrong end of a drug deal happening somewhere in the desert. It feels like there may be some sort of valid thought pattern behind either of these, but it also seems like each and every lead that the investigators get leads to absolutely nowhere, as we're going to see. When Paul disappeared, suspicions of foul play emerged about five days later, when Dick Horton, a Park Service volunteer in his 50s, came forward to recount a memory he'd had. Horton reported that, while in the car with his wife, Joy, around the time of the disappearance, he'd seen Paul slumped between two men in a pickup barreling away from the monument at 50 miles per hour. Horton's story was promising enough that at the end of January 1980, Detective Emanuel had him put under hypnosis at a nearby motel. Horton worked up a sweat and shed tears, recalling that Paul looked, quote, sad and dejected. 
The pickup was dark green with a camper shell. The driver, he said, was in his 30s, had a Kenny Rogers beard, and was wearing a black, white, and red plaid shirt. The second man wore a green jacket, perhaps the one Paul had left the visitor center with. Others working in the monument reportedly saw vehicles spin out tracks on a primitive road near the faraway and signs of a scuffle in the dirt. So this is the hypnosis I just mentioned. Right. Yeah. I don't know about the validity of hypnosis in terms of recalling things like this. I don't either, but the the scuffle marks and the tracks in the road, that's interesting. It is. In October 1980, Emanuel had received a block print letter telling him to, quote, ask Ernest Goff in the county jail in Phoenix about Mr. Fugit. A year later, another letter in the same style pointed the finger at a guy named Tex Carpenter. Both were postmarked in Bloomington, Illinois. Yeah, super weird. weird. Very weird. That's so strange. Around the time the letters were sent, Goff was acquitted in a high-profile prison gang slang, and a couple of weeks after Paul vanished, Goff and Carpenter stole a pickup at the Phoenix airport and crashed it into an orange tree. Carpenter agreed to take a polygraph test in October 1981, but bailed during the pretest interview after three hours of rambling digressions. Carpenter said he'd seen Goff and another unnamed individual shoot Fugit and had helped bury him south of Tucson, quote, in a wash in Santa Cruz County. Carpenter's life had evidently been threatened in prison by the Aryan Brotherhood, and he had seemed willing to tell authorities anything, true or not. Two weeks later, he went through with the polygraph test and recanted the story entirely. Interviewed by the FBI the following year, Carpenter said he might know something about Fugit but wouldn't talk unless he got some kind of deal. Goff denied any involvement. Both men have since died. Yep. Ugh. Dead lead. Rough, Dead man. lead number one, I guess, for us. Um, I want to know more, more about the truck that they stole. Yeah. What I that truck too. looked like. In November 1982, Emanuel got a call from the police department in Racine, Wisconsin. According to police reports, a man in his 20s, Borrell calls him David, had been telling friends he'd been to the place where Cochise is buried and boasted about killing a police or border patrol officer in Arizona. Fugit wasn't a police officer, but he did carry a badge. What's with people in bars bragging about killing people? Can we talk about that? Because they're what trash. The fuck? trash. They're people. garbage people. <laughs> You're so I don't go to the bars stupid. anymore. I'm tired Seriously. of them. I don't want to hear about how many people you've shot. I don't need I was to sick hear of it. it. I don't want to know where you've buried oh the body God. because then I'm an accomplice. I don't want to deal with that pressure. <laughs> Like, I was about to say, leave me out of it, but I also want to solve true crime. Like, always, that would be that'd be really cool to solve a mystery, but also, it's what always, the fuck is wrong with you? It's fun to think about solving a mystery until you see a dead body. Yeah. Then it's a little different. And then I couldn't <laughs> handle it. And then you quit. At the time of Fugit's disappearance, David had apparently been working as a mechanic at a shop in Tucson called Auto World. Emanuel drove to the place and introduced himself to the owner, Frank Youngquist. He was taken aback when Youngquist casually, casually asked him how Dodie was doing. What? Though it wasn't clear how the two knew each other. Then Youngquist made a comment that felt like a taunt. Quote, missing persons are sure hard to work, he said. Yeah, <laughs> it just continues to just go down into the, a rabbit up. hole of confusion. A lot of stuff is going on. I don't know what to believe. Oh, quote, that ran deep, Emmanuel told the group. The interview had got more hostile after that. He ran me out of the garage, Emanuel said. When he tried to subpoena Youngquist records, Youngquist appealed to an assistant DA who quashed the request. Why? I don't know. I, maybe not enough reason. I have no idea. It's Probably so hard not to get riled. A lot of paperwork. A lot of paperwork. <laughs> it's so hard not to get riled reading these stories. It is. Do your job. Emanuel interviewed David in Wisconsin to ask about his comments. 
He said he'd been puffing himself up at a party. I'm a bullshitter, he said. Emmanuel offered to fly him to Tucson so he could take a polygraph to clear his name. David eventually agreed, but the night before the test, according to the polygrapher's report, he was so frazzled that he popped several sleeping pills. He failed the test, insisting afterward that because people had accused him of Fugit's murder, he sometimes thinks that he did it. <laughs> it okay, so he crazy people talk. did it. He did it. Like... It seems like it. I mean, there, and there is some strange, there's some additional stuff that is uh, in the article about some property that Youngquist apparently, like his dad had bought at in or near the park as well and just held on to it for 40 years and then sold it again. There were pictures taken of it and uh, it just never really amounted to anything. But huh. it, it was weird, right? Definitely weird. The problem for Emmanuel was that no other evidence connected David to any crime. Nevertheless, in 1983, the detective told the Associated Press that he expected to charge, quote, persons with the homicide of Paul Fugit in the not-so-distant future. When that didn't pan out, someone leaked David's name to the media, and David has been a hermit ever since, working in an unnamed auto shop without so much as a mail slot. Emmanuel's certainty about his guilt hasn't waned. If he didn't do it, he knew exactly how it was done, he told Borrell. Yeah, Emmanuel is convinced that he was killed. Just flat out, like there's, he doesn't think that there's any other option. It's a remote area, but also I don't feel like there's a lot of places to hide. There's not. Well, I don't know. It's a, it's a mount. It's a sky. So this whole area is what's called a sky island, where it's just like desert, 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 big mountain range. Right. And there's a lot of nooks and crannies in those hoodoos, yeah. and you're, it's very. That I don't know. Range isn't too it's far. A, it looks scary to die in a place like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I feel like it would be very easy to just never find a body. Ugh. Yeah. There have been numerous leads throughout the decades with vague connections and strained property purchases with too many names to count. Some of the leads are pretty recent, too. The last one was in 2018. Ultimately, though, no hard evidence was ever found to account for what happened to Paul, and all leads ran dry. Besides the strange investigative events, there's the strange thing Dodie did that happened shortly after Paul went missing. Days into the initial search, Dodie brought in a clairvoyant, Sandy Brook, who immediately detected what she called a time portal inside the Riggs house. Yeah, back in those days, psychic detectives like Dorothy Allison, who assisted in the investigation of the Son of Sam murders, were a uh, daytime TV staple, and just people fucking loved them. They ate them up. It's almost like you had to do it. Totally. Mm-hmm. Still weird. Brooke, <laughs> yeah. Brooke claimed that she'd had a vision of two men bending over a woman's drugged, unconscious body. Paul inadvertently witnessed something he shouldn't have, she said. The men subdued him, shoved a drug down his throat, and dumped him across the Mexican border. Dodie seemed shaken by this report, particularly because she had seen sketchy characters and apparent vandalism around the faraway. Someone is lying, she wrote in her notes from that day. Someone knows what happened. So that's kind of weird happenstance, right? Was it just something people liked to do at the time, bringing the psychic? I don't know. But she had another version of the story. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I don't know, it's strange that that was her first reaction <laughs> to, to what to do. Time, what'd she say, time portal? Ta- time, well, the fact time that she hole? brought a uh, clairvoyant time and the hole. fact that Dodie brought a, a clairvoyant in, that was like, oh, like Paul's missing, my God, bring in the psychic. Right, like you, she had already accepted that. Weird first reaction, Definitely. I think. Or second reaction, I guess a couple of days, but still, top three. It was. It happened pretty quickly. Yeah, top yeah. three reactions, one of them's bringing a psychic, something's up. Well, as far as we can tell, there's no evidence that Paul was murdered. What does that leave, though? Possibly some sort of fraud. 
yeah, there's some other stuff that happened. If you didn't think this was weird enough, there's another sort of storyline that seems to have happened. So Borel's investigative work is honestly impressive in his article, and it brings forward a lot of good points. We've used a lot of it so far, but like he he seems to have like really dug hard. He did some like real true journalism for this. So in his article, he makes note that Dodie didn't make her way to the monument until four days after Paul's disappearance, and that she was never asked to provide an alibi, nor was a formal search conducted of her Tucson residence. Hmm. Yeah, she had visited a therapist friend and then went to work on the day she heard the news about Paul, but she stuck around town to see if he or someone demanding a ransom would phone. When she arrived at the monument that Thursday, she seemed to have her emotions under control, and the thing she seemed most upset about was Bonnie's pregnancy. It wasn't the infidelity that irked her, but her fear that the park service would somehow use it against Paul. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, so, so Dodie's acting sketchy from the get-go. She's acting a little weird, and things just continued down this, this rabbit hole. At Paul's cabin, investigators found an unfinished life insurance application and a check Dodie had written to Paul from their joint bank account. She told Hanley that Paul intended to open a new account in nearby Wilcox. It was preparation, she later wrote, for her move to the monument that June. Supposedly, Paul and Dodie had discussed occupying an old bunkhouse near the faraway so Paul would be better able to keep an eye on the riffraff she believed were a problem. But this elaborate story didn't add up. Hanley learned that their Tucson bank already had a branch in Wilcox. If Paul and Dodie had a plan to live together, no one at the monument could remember it. I have no recollection that she ever decided to come out there, said Scott, the monument superintendent. Hmm. And the bank in town already existed. Yeah. Like they are, their bank already existed. Yeah, there was no town. need for a new one. Huh. Two weeks after Paul disappeared, Dodie asked Scott how long she would have to wait before getting Paul's retirement benefits, according to a memo he prepared at the time. It seemed a little premature, Scott said. We still didn't know if we were going to find him. Borrell asked Dodie about this, who responded that she was preparing for the worst. Mainly because I wasn't making much money, I asked about his retirement benefit, she tells him. It was just one of those things you do. So that kind of makes sense. A little bit. Yeah. She was probably nervous about finances. She's the, the wife of a, a missing park naturalist. Right. Like <laughs> it's probably not probably a probably didn't cash. have a lot of cash. And yeah. Yeah. Now he's gone. During the original investigation, Emmanuel asked Dodie to take a polygraph to rule her out in the involvement. She showed up with a lawyer, a close friend, and a tape recorder. Quote, Mrs. Fugit initially appeared to be very wary in so much as her battery of 10 civil legal advisors had provided her with much conflicting advice regarding this polygraph examination, reads the examiner's report. Dodie denied having any contact with Paul or knowing whether he was dead or alive. The examiner felt she was being truthful, but noted that her response was very subdued and near the numerical area of being classified as being inconclusive. Hmm. And polygraphs are bullshit anyway. Right. And so really, who knows what, what that would have told us. But by 1985, she had a job at Hughes Aircraft and was making $20,000, the equivalent of about 48000 today, but she had less than $2,000 in the bank. In letters to Ed Morgan, her lawyer, Dodie said that the wretches at the Park Service owed her $660,000, and with that amount, she could buy a house and cover her losses, which included two Arabian horses, lots of Kachina dolls, one-year psychiatric counseling, damage to teeth from grinding, she wrote that in there, and the wear and tear on one 44-year-old woman. Huh. She was What's with the horses? I rate. I guess she lost them because she had to move. I think she had horses and she just couldn't afford them anymore. Maybe she had to sell them. I don't know. Huh. During her long legal fight with the government, which was heard in US Federal Claims Court in Washington DC, she sent various correspondence she got to Morgan. In August 1895, she wrote, "Dear Ed, plaintiff respectfully submits damn little new to be reported to the Court of Claims. Here it is anyhow." 
So she is pretty bitter yeah. <laughs> at, at these people. Well, and again, like they have been mistreated before. Yeah, they, they already have. had a contentious relationship, yeah. so it makes sense. But also, you it's know, a little strange. Well, yeah, and honestly, <laughs> honestly, if the gender were reversed in this situation, and there was a man whose wife had gone missing, and two weeks later he was asking about like following up on the money and all of this stuff, like we'd be fucking coming be after a him. Little, yeah, you know what I be, mean? We'd be so, looking at it pretty hard. I don't it's know. Very true. So in one of Dodie's file boxes, Borel found a letter that Paul had written to her along with a handwritten will. Dodie explained to him that she'd found it in her safe deposit box shortly after Paul had vanished. It was dated December 23rd, 1978. Quote, you won't be opening this unless something bad has happened, or at least I hope not, it began. I have done what I could to see that you can be self-sufficient and believe that it is possible now. I know that I've been a long way from perfect and all and seem to have gotten worse as time has passed, but I still love you dearly. Aww. It's a very sweet letter. Paul also left specific advice on selling some of his rifles and giving him a cheap burial. He also emphasized that the best strategy for her to claim his government death benefits might entail paying off a loan. He added that she had the proper talents to succeed without him and that she could, quote, be resolute enough to get through the tough part immediately ahead and do better afterward. Okay, weird. A little strange. I mean... Once again... It's included with the will. It's almost cryptic. But it's kind of cryptic. <laughs> it's like a very sweet cryptic, like the end of Breaking Bad. Um, if you haven't seen that, it's a spoiler alert. It's been years, so what are you doing? <laughs> Where Walt is yelling at Scholar through the, f- to, through the phone to make sure that she isn't accused of being part of the ploy. Right. It's kind of like that. Oh. Yeah. Whatever the nature of their love, Paul clearly felt an enduring sense of loyalty toward her and she to him. I basically married the one person I could marry, she says. She has never had another romantic relationship, and her closest friends are er, her closest friend is still Paul's sister. That's very sweet. It is very sweet. Yes, it is. This is this is a heart. It's like this. The story pulls your heart in all sorts of different directions. I know. It really does. So was it some sort of con? Was it a play to swindle the bureaucracy for all they could? Was Paul taken to Mexico by drug dealers, murdered just because he chose the wrong hiking path to go down, or did he simply just leave? To this day, nobody really knows. However, the last time that Borrell and Anderson spoke, they discussed a particular report in the file. It described a guy having a beer in Sierra Vista about two hours from the monument. The man had been at a training course with Fugit years earlier, and at the bar, he sees a man walk in who looks just like him. The guy sits down across the room and orders a drink. The two men lock eyes. There's a brief moment of recognition. Then the lookalike suddenly grabs his bag and walks out, leaving the half-empty drink behind. Mm -hmm. That's not the end, though. What? Yeah. The man at the bar gets a plastic bag, collects the cup, and takes it to the sheriff. They pull fingerprints from it, hoping to compare them with our missing person. Then, in what could be seen as one last twist of fate, they realize they have nothing to compare them with. Though Paul Fugit was a federal employee for eight years, the government doesn't have his prints on file. What? What? Uh, How do they not have his prints on file? I don't know. That's insane. I was a preschool teacher, and I had to go to the sheriff's office to get printed. It's like, an absolutely crazy story. Like, and did I, they lose them? Did they never have them? I don't know. I don't Did somebody know. remove I don't them? Know. You're asking so many ah! questions. We have so many more questions. That that's it, guys. That's, that's all it. we have. And oh my God, it's such an interesting story to me. It's so crazy. And the, the when I read that for the first time, chills. Whew, I was like, holy shit, this is a nutso story. Part of me does kind of hope that he's still out there. I do kind of. I mean, obviously, because I don't want him to be dead. <laughs> you know. But I mean, like. 
Yeah, like what if it was like him and Dodie? They they their relationship just like kept coming to a head. They were they loved each other, but they just couldn't make it work. And he was like, "I'm taking off, but I'm gonna set you up before I do." And yeah, he did. And then she lo- still loved him. And he's just down in Mexico. And he's just in Mexico, hanging out, grabbing a beer. I, honestly, I don't know the, that that the last story. Very, very. Uh, oh, just, and the whole money thing. Sorry, it's yeah, insinuating the, that maybe mm-hmm. he sent. She's sending him money. Yeah, because she doesn't have any. <gasps> Aww. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a really, really just a uh, wild ride. It's a wild ride. Yeah. There's so many things that are going on, and this is all happened in this little tiny desert place. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it's, it's America at its best, maybe. <laughs> Really and truly, classic Americana. Yeah, I think so. We could someone Hank Hank Williams could have wrote a song about this. Absolutely. Yeah, and but that's the, that's it, guys. That's the end of this episode. I'm so glad I took the time to, to go back and redo what we were doing this week. Yeah, that was that was a great episode. Like I said, you got to follow what's it, the dopamine or the serotonin, whatever makes you happy. Yeah, that was this fucking chock full of it this time. Crazy story. Yeah, I want to know more. Guys, if you know anything else about this, please let us know. Email us. Uh, Get in the Discord. Yeah, please. Before you do that, though, go read the article. It is absolutely amazing, and I'm glad that I opened that email link. Yeah, me too. It's very good. Yeah, uh, that's it, guys. Crazy. I want to go to that park now. Just because yeah. I like, want to kind of like visualize. Absolutely, yeah. I totally, right? I totally agree with you. I'd, I'd love to go there sometime. I like going to the desert occasionally. It's not somewhere that I would want to live, but it's somewhere that I would go to eat peyote and sit on a rock. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it looks. I, I love our national parks. National park system, though. One last time, get it together, guys. Find our Don't missing people, or at least like make it accessible for other people to help find the Something. missing people. They like, do seem very, up, very man. interested in making it as hard as possible to get access to that information. Well, that just makes it seem like they're trying to cover up. So y'all just open it up and then you won't seem as sketchy. Yep. All right, guys. Well, if you do know more about this, join in the Discord and let, it, let everyone know. You can find a link to the Discord on Instagram and Twitter at the underscore LRH underscore pod. Be sure to follow us on there. Every single one of those little button clicks helps us so, so much. Yeah, did you hear Save is the new like? It absolutely That's what I heard. Apparently that's, Save the is street. the new like, so hit that Save button, y'all. Please. Um, you can also find us on Facebook at the LRH pod, and you can reach us via email at the LRH show at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, by the way, talking about the article, we are going to throw up that source link uh, in the Discord. So yes, easy access. If you want to contribute to the podcast, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the LRH podcast. I'd like to thank Cool Beans and PB Need J for being our wonderful patrons yeah, this month. Yeah, you guys rock. Go join them. Go say hello. You How you liking speci- them stickers, by Yes, way. I hope you enjoyed them. Uh, new logo is coming soon. I already have I have an idea yeah. now. It's in my brain. Yay. It's coming. I just got to take it. It's coming. I just have, oh my God. <laughs> I have to just get it out there into the world. And it's going to be soon. I promise. And once that happens, our all of our patrons will get a new sticker with our new logo. Also, guys, if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a rating and a review. Those are helping us so much. We've gotten actually a couple in the past couple yeah, weeks, and thank, thank you, you guys. guys so so much for getting the word out there and spread this around to your friends. Go on their phones and just press the five stars button. That's really all you need to That's do. They don't have to listen. To That's fine. And uh, if you are listening, thank you. Yeah, we do love you. <laughs> we do like that you're listening too, though. <laughs> yeah, there is one last thing, guys. Uh, the audio platform that we produce our podcast and send it out with is working with a. a 
website called Podchaser on their second hashtag reviews for good campaign. For every review written on Podchaser in April, Podchaser is donating 25 cents to Mills on Wheels, America's Go Further Fund. So go on there, search our name, leave a review, and they'll they'll just automatically donate 25 cents to Mills on Wheels, which yeah. is really cool. Replies to those reviews will double the donation, and they're matching all donations to uh, the hosted podcast up to $1,000. So go on there and just leave a review. It, it's a, it's a, I think it's a nice cause. It's a good way to help the elderly in this time of pandemic world. Yeah, Meals on Wheels is great. And we'll put all of that info up in the Discord as well as a link to the Podchaser site. So um, yeah, keep an eye it, out for that just, coming your way. It's totally free, uh, just like the Discord is. You can hop on there, log, create a login account, and just do that, and it's, it'll help someone. Literally, so. the more interaction we have, the more money we can raise. That's all it takes. And that's it. That's everything. Yeah, we'll be back on Monday with our usual mini-sode. It's Emily's turn this week, and I wonder what wonderful things she'll have. It's always so much nicer than what I find. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find something good. We yeah. got something good coming down the pipe. Yeah, that's it. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for joining us on The, the Long, Long Road, Road Home. Home. See you later. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.